The appeal of venture capital around the world is growing, and people and governments understand its impact on their economies. The global fi financial crisis of 2008 drained the confidence of small business owners and budding entrepreneurs. Governments all around the world, including Canada's, have recognized that small enterprises are the future and that venture capital invests in that future. Venture capital goes further than that. It goes further than securing economic prosperity. It gives ideas, missions, and entrepreneurs a chance to succeed. Venture capital is the fuel that drives the heart and spirit of Canadian values. It shapes products and services that basically improve our quality of life. It takes courage for venture capitalists to take on the risks that come with investing in startups. If you think about it, where would humanity be without the risk-taking of our ancestors? Our task is to embrace these risks so that the future generations will be rich with opportunity. All of our speakers today are risk-takers. We're fortunate to have Amar Varma, Anthony Lacavera, Dr. Michael Bloom, John Ruffalo, and Mike Eppel here today. Amar Varma is one of North America's foremost experts in mobile applications. And he spends much of his time educating enterprises and academia about the mobile ecosystem. Amar co-founded Extreme Labs and Extreme Venture Partners to capitalize on the, uh, uh, to capitalize on the mobile ecosystem. I remember meeting Amar about six years ago, and he told me that one day you'll be, able, you'll be able to order a pizza from your telephone. I thought he was crazy. But today, that company of two people has grown to 200 people. Welcome, Mr. Varma. Anthony Lacavera is chairman and CEO of Globalive, and uh, Globalive Communications and Wind Mobile. Tony founded Globalive in 1998, and co-founded WinMobile in 2008. Despite how young he looks, he was named CEO of the Year by the Globe and Mail. Tony is someone who dared to take on the impossible and, with the help of a few others, opened up the mobile te telecom market in Canada. Welcome, Mr. Lacavera. Dr. Michael Bloom is Vice President of Organizational Effectiveness and learning at the Conference Board of Canada. He's responsible for managing five research groups, and he's also leading a major multi-year Conference Board research initiative at the Centre for Food in Canada, which is developing a Canadian food strategy. Welcome, Dr. Bloom. John Ruffalo is the CEO of Omer's Ventures, the venture arm of Omer's. He currently serves on the executive of the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. And Omer's Ventures is one of the largest players in venture capital funding in Canada. Welcome, Mr. Ruffalo. And finally, we have our moderator today, Mike Apple. He's been reporting on the markets and business for over 20 years. He was actually a former member of the Board of Directors of the Empire Club of Canada and has been a reporter for CTV News Channel, CTV National News, CFTO, and BNN. He is currently the senior business editor at 680 News. 
Welcome, Mr. Apple. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, please, uh, please put your hands together for our guests. I think uh, you know where you're seated, and Mike, I think you'll be sitting right here at the end. Thank you, Noble. Good afternoon, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, great. Just making sure. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to moderate this panel this morning on, or this afternoon. On, uh, on 680, we deal in business with uh, a lot of publicly traded companies, companies that are already established, uh, what the markets are doing. We, don't, we, we delve to some extent on, on new ventures, but uh, you know, the focus is on uh, the, the major publicly traded companies. So it's a nice change of pace uh, for me to talk about you know, what could be up and coming, how do we grow uh, venture capital in this country, really grow the economy, create jobs. And we have uh, four experts uh, joining me here on the panel this, this afternoon to discuss this. Our, our topic of discussion today is, is bridging the expectations gap between venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm not going to say very much. You're here to hear, you're here to hear our experts uh, this afternoon. So I'm going to start with, uh, to my far left, and Amar Varma to discuss uh, what you're finding uh, right now in the world of venture capital. Is, uh, a couple of years ago, we had uh, uh, you know, Canada and the world slowing down, obviously, with, uh, with risk money being pumped into the market. Are we on an uptrend here uh, along with the, the global economy, perhaps? Short answer is yes, and I think the opportunity is way bigger than everybody appreciates. I think we face as a generation today going forward a much different generation than the one previous in that, you know, my parents worked at places for 20 plus years, you know, aspired for that day they could retire and, and, and have a pension and enjoy their time. Um, you know, through a number of events, fraud, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, is, that is not possible for our generation with any kind of confidence that uh, our previous generation had. So you're, you're seeing a, a breaking apart of the monolithic institutions that dominated uh, industries over the last 50, 70 years. And I think what's transitioned for folks in our generation now is we've gone from, you know, manufacturing and a bunch of these things. You know, the auto industry was a big, big deal in this province for sure. And now what we need to do over the next generation so that our kids can sit here in the same chair as a generation from now going, hey, we made some really smart decisions today that enabled them to have a very strong economy and GDP growth ahead of them. Uh, and make some risky decisions about changing the dynamic and composition of our economy. Hmm. I think we need to go into knowledge-based industries, areas where we have opportunities a generation from now to be a top one or two global competitive country uh, versus you know, always trying to play second fiddle. We'll talk about the, the idea of, of, of finding specific sectors that we can excel at. Uh, John uh, Ruffalo, if you could speak about uh, the world of Omer's uh, ventures and uh, private uh, uh, pension money coming into uh, sure. venture capital. Um, uh, Omer started off really with this is the thesis why Omer's Ventures was actually created. Um, you know, if you look uh, what's happening from a global and demographic perspective, the days of Canada sitting still and assuming we're going to still maintain the same standard of living um, with the threats uh, that are currently there about you know, demographic shifts about jobs, uh, you know, where is the middle class going to be working, you know, where is our manufacturing sector, is it going to employ the same uh, levels of people? Uh, and are we going to go back to being the, you know, the drawers of water and hewers of wood? And, and 
that keeps me up at night. And when you look at the assets of this country, uh, knowledge-based industry is not the only place that we need to be focusing on, but I believe is one of the few industries as a nation that we need to be focused on because the days of trying to focus on everything is over. Uh, we're going to have to pick and we're going to have to be strategic. And strategy to me is saying no to things that you used to say yes to. And, and we think knowledge-based industries is one area that Canada should play in. And when you also look at the successful industries in Canada right now, what made them successful is really two, two basic words, productivity and innovation. And the, 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 the job that I have at Olmers is that I lead our innovation investing. And, and one aspect of that happens to be the build out of our own venture capital arm. And you ask, well, why did that happen? First and foremost, the, the goal of a pension fund is to sustain the future uh, income of our members. There's no questions and there's no way that you, know, you can do something else because you will not be sustainable. But within that mandate, is there an opportunity to actually create a double bottom line where if, if we happen to invest in places where we think there is superior financial returns and as well growing jobs in this country, guess what? We get more pension members. It's a great self-sustaining model. So we spent a lot of time trying to think about where, where are the spots. We are putting our money where our mouth is and we picked innovation. The Omer's Ventures, which was born really only about uh, uh, less than two years ago, what is an attempt to deploy that capital. We've deployed already in 16 months $120 million to really uh, place our bets and to really provide that rocket fuel for these Canadian industry or this Canadian industry to start really uh, shining. Dr. Michael Bloom from uh, the conference board. Um, is it, you track the trends in venture yeah. capital, obviously. Is it primarily economy-based, like you know, a few years ago, maybe there wasn't so much money coming in, is it coming back in now? Is it that easy to track uh, venture capital investing? Um, the, I think um, you start, as Alan Greenspan called it, irrational exuberance occasionally rears its head <laughs> in Canada, and the year 2000 comes to mind, which was the peak point for venture capital money, about $6 billion. There are, some, there are some cyclical issues, there's no doubt about it. Too. People kind of moved away from this sort of investment when they when the economy went south in the recession. But beyond that, there are some more fundamental issues. Um, by the way, at the conference board, one of my latest thing is I'm leading a center on business innovation. That center is coming out of our conviction that innovation is what we're lacking in this country on the scale we need it. And we're, we're starting to look at uh, why it's not happening. And I think this issue around venture capital uh, comes to some pretty profound things in in the way in which we operate. And some of our work, we have a, several studies coming out shortly, and we've, we've been looking into this rather closely through surveys, but also executive interviews. There is a gap between the way in which the entrepreneurs are connecting to the capital in this country. At the, on the, in the early stage money, uh, our entrepreneurs who are enthusiastic are very keen and, and can talk about their with pride about the features of their work, their innovation. They're reluctant to give up control. 
they don't really know how to price the value of what they're doing in the market. They often don't have a great deal of management acumen. The people with money are, uh, in Canada, compared to the U.S., somewhat risk adverse, compared to the U.S. A Deloitte study recently found there was some difference there. But more than that, Canadians do set up their own firms on a, on a large scale. We have a lot of small businesses. So the issue seems to be, on both sides, people are either reluctant to give up control and to emphasize the value part. And on the other side, the people with the money are reluctant to give up control uh, and give the money away with a risk, which they can't price properly in the market. So we have an issue here between the, the folks with the ideas and the enthusiasm and the folks with the money. And, and the big question is, how do we close that? And Anthony Lacavera, you've had uh, experience uh, uh, with a, a company in the telecommunications industry, foreign investment, dealing with government regulations. You've run the gamut with, uh, with uh, entrepreneurship. What's, what's your take on the state of venture capital right now? Well, I think in order to, uh, Mike, in order to actually bridge a gap, I think we actually need to first talk about what the expectations are actually on each side. And I'd echo some of the comments of, uh, of Dr. Bloom uh, in that regard, that I think that we have uh, a situation where education, there's a shortfall in education and understanding of what's really expected. So when an entrepreneur walks into John's office and is looking for uh, some seed funding or some early stage funding, uh, there's, there's often a wide miss on what John's hearing from that entrepreneur, uh, and it's along the lines of what, of what, of what uh, Michael is saying, that mm -hmm. basically there's a, a, an unrealistic expectation of value in many cases. There's a, a, a lack of business acumen, which leads to business plans that are incomplete. So I think we have to focus on, on education of, of young entrepreneurs and helping young entrepreneurs break through that. On the other side, I think that we have an incredible uh, shortfall in this country with an embedded as a result of an embedded culture of, of risk aversion. Uh, and what I mean by that specifically is that, it, you know, and I'll use my own personal example, um, I come from a family of, of uh, my mom was a teacher, my dad was a, a lawyer, and the expectation when I was a kid is that I would go to school and uh, become a teacher or become a lawyer. And when I started my first business when I was 21, 22, when I was still in undergraduate school at engineering, the big place to go work was Nortel. And there was an expectation in my family that I would get some work experience at Nortel. And that was the safe, secure place to go. Uh, <laughs> Were they right on that count? <laughs> I don't know how that turned out. So I think, that, I think we, need to, uh, we need to break through that, that mm -hmm. uh, culture of risk aversion. And, and it's, great, it's great and a necessary part of the process to, uh, to pivot and fail and have challenges. And those are all good things, mm -hmm. not, not negative things. I just want to mention that we will uh, open the floor to question, uh, question and answer uh, from the audience uh, with about uh, 15 minutes left to, to go uh, this afternoon. Uh, but to that point, um, Anthony, you talk about risk aversion here in Canada, and we say, oh, the United States does uh, such a much uh, a better job at these things. They're more aggressive. Is that perhaps, though, not just a fact of the matter? They've got 300 million people. We have 30, give or take. You know, it's a, it's a much larger country. There is more <coughs> money perhaps there to be utilized, so can we measure ourselves against a, a, a powerhouse like our friends south of the border? I don't think we should measure ourselves against, uh, against the U.S., Mike. I think that obviously they're a benchmark for a lot of things, and there's always globally, they're the land of milk and honey, and although that's changing. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, the, the BRIC countries are clearly 
uh, running hard against them. But I think I don't think we should focus on that. I think what we and we I think we should just uh, as as John was alluding to, we need to understand that our our economy is based on on natural resources. It is based on mining. It is based on you know the uh, drawers of water, hewers of wood. Uh, now that, that's a reality for us. But I, I think that if we focus on on innovation and focus on diversifying away from that, we can uh, we can break break free from that. And we shouldn't be measuring ourselves necessarily against the U.S. I think it's more of a global question, and we should be measuring ourselves and challenging ourselves against uh, the speed of innovation that's happening in places like uh, like Asia and, uh, and 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 Brazil and and, and Russia as well. So in India. So all those, all those places I think we should be uh, looking as benchmarks, not just the U.S. Any other members of the panel want to chime in? I've, uh, recently we've been looking at this issue and trying to see, on the one hand, the United States is 315 million people, we have 35, and uh, so the, their domestic economy is big enough to support most of what they do, and that's why they're not a big trading country relative to their economy. We're not that. And so what do we do about that? Well, we, we, we surveyed, we have survey results from 630 firms. We asked them, what's your, what's your strategy for innovation? Where are you going with it? Is it? Are you pinning it on technology? Are you pinning it on responding to users or customers? Or are you looking at new markets? Third place was new markets. And half of that was they considered new markets to be another province. That leaves the world, and if you took off the U.S. piece of that, what about the rest of the world? All those emerging markets, the BRIC countries. The answer is our companies aren't really looking very seriously, for the most part, at that world. And since innovation is so intimately connected with growth, if you don't have the ambition of growth by reaching new markets, you inhibit effectively your access to capital because people don't see the scale of upside that somebody like a Google or a Facebook with an ambition to dominate the world uh, is able to present to, the, to people with money. Amara, you're nodding your head. Would you like to chime in? Well, look, I think... I think, I think you know, myself included in this comment, look, I think there's a world happening around us that we, we think we know about, you know, call it other emerging markets, that are just growing leaps and bounds and, and ahead of us uh, in speed, numbers, like every metric you throw down across the board, people with sophistication and PhDs will, will look at it and go, yeah, we're getting crushed. So what, what I look at is, is I look in this room and, and, you know, we need to do something about it, not only for ourselves, but just as a generational thing, we're going to miss the boat if we don't act now. And, and you know, proxies of these things are, are, you know, you can look at, you look at look at proxies in numbers, or you can look at real life facts, right? Look at look at the tourists that are coming to see our country, right? What countries are they from? And and you start to see a change from the Japanese tourist to the Korean tourist to the Chinese. Like you're starting to see a big change around us globally, and I think we're we're blind to if, we're blind if we sit here saying we can do it with internal internal GDP consumption and stuff like that. John, changing focus about what you know, uh, entrepreneurs should expect from uh, from venture capital. When mm -hmm. when you're presented with uh, uh, an idea, um, how is it presented to you? What are you looking for specifically from, you know, where to to put your money? Are you open to the idea of somebody somebody coming in with an idea on a napkin, and if it sounds good, mm -hmm. putting some money behind that, or do you need a, a spreadsheet of of facts and figures to uh, base your judgment on? Um, it's it's a little all over the place, but uh, you know, on, on the you know, your, your first point from uh, the uh, the expectations. First of all, the, uh, the supply of Canadian ideas has been utterly fantastic. There has been a dry spell, I would say, from about 2002 to 2010. There was a lull. 
there is no shortage of, of, of great ideas that we're seeing. The one thing that I do say, um, and it's a little bit to uh, the, the point made earlier, venture capital is just one source of financing, mm -hmm. and it is the most expensive source of financing. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people when they come in and I look at their business plan, there is a, and, and by the way, business plan, that's a very, that's in quotes, because <laughs> we don't like a bit, we don't like the fancy business plan. We actually like the, like you're investing in the entrepreneur, particularly mm -hmm. when you're in the early stage. That business plan, one thing I can guarantee you, it will be nowhere close to what you said it was going to be in the business plan. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, but going to that, that one big expectation gap is, when you see a business, there are a lot of fundable businesses that we don't fund because we're the wrong funder. And you say, why is that? If there is an opportunity to self-fund, to bootstrap, that doesn't impact the ultimate success of that, why on earth would you go and seed capital where we're expecting the highest return? Mm -hmm. The ideal place for venture capital is you have an idea such that there is a window that you require of X amount of capital that you otherwise just cannot obtain in really any other sources. And you need it or the, or the opportunity is really lost for, for a variety of reasons. And that is the ideal circumstance. But knowing that you're going to do that, uh, the way that we look at we're looking at a business partner. This is a marriage. And this idea of the quick flip I hated when Instagram was 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 uh, acquired by Facebook. That was one of the worst disservices that happened to young entrepreneurs in this country. Why? They said, see, they can do it. I can do it too. Well, then you look at what the real story is. The actual incubation period on average is 10 to 15 years. That means you're getting married for 10 to 15 years. And when somebody comes to you with an opportunity, the issue is you really are going to be in bed with this person and you can't take that lightly. And it takes a long time. And this is why you hear a lot about maybe, you know, the, the, there is certainly uh, more given to second timers or people that you already know in your ecosystem because it actually accelerates the process of knowing and trusting. And the earlier in the process you go in funding, like in Ummer's business, it's all based on the quality of the entrepreneur. When we're doing later stage investing, it goes a little bit different because now you actually have traction and product and revenues and you can start to, it looks more like a financial transaction. The, the, the people are still critical, but you got other proof points in there to, 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 to conclude upon. And I think that is the biggest gap that we, that, that we see. And what we're really looking for is when it's an early stage opportunity, the, the people and the idea you have, can we imagine the possibilities with you together? That's the back of the, frankly, it's all back of the envelope sort of thing because uh, it, uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't end up being what you say it's gonna end up being. What's, what's the role of the venture capitalist uh, from the funding uh, point out? How much managerial experience should they also help with, with the startup company? Go ahead, Michael. Um, I think that's one of the, you put your finger on one of the most important issues. If you look at the American experience versus Canadian, with the exception of mining, which is a very sophisticated business in Canada and has lots of people with money and lots of management acumen tied together, 
most sectors here compared to the US don't have the same marriage of money and management skill. I call it management skill. In the United States, and some of the Americans who are bringing money here are doing this here as well, and I know some Canadians do this, but what we need is more people who say, here's some money, and, and I'm going to show you how to bring this thing, fully commercialize it, to take it to a market where you can make a profit. Not just make a prototype, but actually find a market, get into the market, and make some money. So it's, it's a, a know-how and know-who combination. All the better if you can find your way into some market that's outside the province you're operating in. That might be a, a model for growth. That's not something that's coming naturally to everybody with money in this country. They're certainly putting, it, putting in money. Not everybody feels that they have the expertise to offer as well. If we could get some way to connect those two parts more in this country, that would help. Anthony, if, uh, you've dealt with um, you know, government regulation, um, foreign ownership issues. Uh, can you expand on just what you found with that? You know, should, uh, is that something, how, what type of a role should the government play in this? I mean, the, the federal government has a $400 million venture capital fund they've just announced recently. The Ontario government's doing the same thing. There's obviously a place for government in here, but at the same time, do you want governments picking winners and losers for that matter? It, it depends. Well, I think on the, on the 400 million, it's interesting, you know, the way that's being divided up, it's going to so many existing, uh, oper existing uh, institutions, financial institutions. It's not, you know, we're not seeding nearly enough of that 400 into new uh, venture capital and new, manager, new, management, new money management, I, in my view. So I think that that's a great example of a Canadian solution to something where we, we want to take risk, but not really. <laughs> we want to go back to the people that have managed money before successfully. And, and, and not, you know, really, so we're sort of, again, just dipping our toe in the water instead of just going full at it, which is, which is the way I would, uh, I would uh, I'd like to see them approach it. I do think government has a, has a huge role, but I come back to the education point. I think the role of government should be focused on edu and education and breaking down that culture of risk we have in our country. So if, if you show people that it's good and a necessary part of the process, to create, whenever you're going to innovate, there's going to be challenges, there's going to be failure, there's going to be pivots. We need to really make that a positive thing in Canada and the tone surrounding it to be a positive thing. And I think it comes back to, to education. I think governments can create all the policies and frameworks that they want, but at the end of the day, the average Canadian who, who has all these great ideas, and I, I, I agree with John, there's lots of great ideas out there, we don't act on them nearly as fast, as aggressively as mm -hmm. our counterparts to the south, and I think that's, that's what has to happen. A lot of discussion about um, the success of the Canadian mining industry. I mean, we've, we've been a, a leader globally uh, for, mining, for mining ventures. What has made that so successful, and how do we maybe emulate that for other sectors, uh, sectors of the economy? Success breeds success. It's that simple. Hmm. We've been successful there. People can come to lunch, raise $100 million for a patch of land they have, I don't know where, and they can go. Right? It is, it is like we just need more success, and then we'll be able to have the same lunches. I would, I would actually, uh, I would actually disagree with that, uh, with Omar on that. I think it's we in, in mining, we have a huge underlying asset base that we've been able to leverage, and we continue to be able to leverage over a long period of time. When you talk about services and software and IT innovation, that's you're starting from a clean blank sheet of paper. You don't have an underlying asset that the rest of the world already wants to buy from you. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're amazing at mining. I think we've gotten very sophisticated, and we're a leader in that. I think the lesson to take from that more is we can be a leader in any industry we want to put our, our mind and effort to. Michael? Just on that, um, 
That's an interesting point. Uh, we, I think we can go global in a lot of areas, but the mining which started, we clearly had a big resource base. Uh, but now, if you look at the profile of Canadian mining, it's a, you know, Canada has $650 billion invested internationally, and a good chunk of that is mining money. Part of it is because people have really got sophisticated management expertise in how to how to operate a, a, a mine, how to set up a mine, operate it in many different jurisdictions around the world. Also, how to, uh, how to kind of uh, manage the risk, price the risk appropriately, manage the expectation. People have a level of, you know, Canada's a country that likes good order and trust, and I think there's a level of trust now in, in that track record of 40, 50 years of going global. Mike, but I, I, I would say there's one reason why uh, whether is Canada is a mining capital of the world, it's one of them. Canada is the mining finance capital of the world. Why did that happen? One reason and one reason only, flow through shares, a tax policy that started 40 years ago and continues to this day, and it's the single biggest subsidy that's been going on for a long, long time. And despite that success, and we are irrefutable, the leader in the world, we don't dare stop that. So when you ask the question about government stimulus, there is a great example. I don't like government involved in anything as a starting point. But when, when, when somebody had made a strategic decision and decided we're gonna just, we're gonna put something on jet fuel, that was a decision. Just like Shred is on the innovation stuff. And yet, you know, people talk about the three or four billion dollars of Shred. Let's talk about the 10 billions or hundreds of billions now of of flow through share financing. It does work, and, and just to Tony's point, the reason why it also worked is that we had this you know, God-given resources here, and the two were able to be exploited in the same backyard together, and I think that was great, and that should continue on. And using that as an example, and, uh, and with Canadian-based entrepreneurs, you talk about risk, I, I use this example, you may have heard me say it before. When I go in the valley and they talk about risk, they go, those guys in Western Canada, are they insane? They, they put something in the ground and I hope that something's going to pop out. Those guys are the craziest, riskiest guys in the world. I would never do that. So what is it that's in that backyard? Well, they've also had hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, of you know, half of the taxpayer funded, to, 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 to play with that risk. So that's where you see capital playing a role to give people and empower the people to, to, play, to play the risk game. So should there be more tax credits made available for various industries or just across the board for venture money? Should the, the regulators loosen restrictions on what needs to be uh, documented for investment, for example? Um, you know, does there need to be all that red tape to actually get something off the ground? I, 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 I'll give you specifically, I, I wasn't a big fan of the $400 million fund per se, because it actually creates additional risk. I believe in, pardon Mark Romuff, private public partnerships. The private dictates where the resources get allocated. I'm making fun of Mark because he's public, private, but <laughs> whatever. The, the private dictates it, and the public gives it some more fuel, some more jet fuel. And programs that I was, uh, far more supportive of were angel tax credits or corporate venture capital tax credits. Let the private sector place the bet, the bet, and we'll give you some more jet fuel to compensate you 
some extent of the of the significant risk you're going to take, as opposed to continuing to create more and more uh, things and, and structures and complexity, and and increase the amount of time for capital to be deployed on the ground. Because at the end of the day, the question is, how do we get capital in the hands of the entrepreneurs as fast as possible with the least red tape and allow private sector devices to, to, to run freely? <laughs> that, that's my Support mother. That's my mother over there. <laughs> I told you to stay home. <laughs> I, I, I want to open the... <laughs> I want to open the floor up to questions in just a moment. Uh, before that, if I could ask maybe your thoughts on the idea of crowdsource funding. There's, this has been something that's been, been gaining strength a little bit or, or some notoriety on the internet about, uh, well, if there's no place else to go, go to the net to, to raise money. Is there, a, is there a future in that? Is that at the, the nascent uh, beginning of, of, of uh, venture capital funding, or is that just risky money being thrown at the wall and see what sticks? Okay. I think regulation is going to be key for that to survive long term and, and to grow. So I, I, I personally like it. I'm a fan of it. But I think that it, it's completely unruly right now. And it's not going to be sustainable because too many people are going to lose money too quickly. And it's, it's, going, to, it's going to flame out. So I think, uh, you know, as much as I would be aligned with the idea that government should be on a light touch, I think that one mm -hmm. is one that needs some sort of uh, policy framework soon to, okay. to grow. And, and Michael, you mentioned earlier about the, the, the sort of the, the boom and bust aspect of this. Uh, you know, six billion dollars put into venture capital in, in 2000, mm -hmm. then it dropped off the face of the planet mm -hmm. basically when when the economy went uh, went sour, and now it's and now it's picking up. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid those cycles? Is there a way, or is that just psychology? I don't think you can avoid the cycle in business. I mean, I think that's just part of everybody's got to make that plan. But the thing you can do is just keep hammering. There is a business cycle. You know, things go down, they do come up. And don't be playing the game so that you have to have that result in six months or you're out of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's having, a, having a, a sound basis for planning. I think, by the way, I'm, our finding is echoing this thing that the uh, people are putting their money in for longer. Uh, whereas they were going two to five, we're seeing more people looking for five to ten year investments. So to me, that's playing a, over the business cycle. So I think we may get, a, get away from that uh, business about people being irrationally exuberant mm -hmm. if they play the longer term game. Now, they still have to have an exit strategy at some point or else you're simply, there's no difference than going to the public market as a, a launch your company. Um, so I, th I think that's, that's a way, the way forward is to, uh, is to think of a, a, a medium to longish term. Do we have any uh, questions from the floor? And we'll have a, we have a microphone, a roving microphone that will come to you if you just want to raise your hand, and and we'll take some questions. And here in front. Hi, hey, Anthony. Joel Lessam from Firmex, the CEO of Firmex. I have a question. I know a lot of very successful entrepreneurs who haven't got any venture funding. People who've built 10, 50, 100 million dollar businesses, and I know a lot of venture capital funds that haven't made any money. So I'm kind of wondering what your opinion is in the past. Why hasn't venture capital produced a good IRR as an asset class versus a lot of successful entrepreneurs have managed to do it without the funding? Was that directed at? Sorry. Well, that, that uh, I mean, so I'd actually, uh, I don't know the stats nearly as well as, as maybe my counterparts here, so I might be the wrong person to ask that to, but question to. But I think one of the challenges we have in Canada, from my own experience in trying to seed fund and find early stage funding for, is there's just not enough venture capital institutions to go to. So there isn't actually a competitive market 
for venture capital in Canada the way there is even just in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, let alone the United States at, at large. I think that if you had a competitive market where you know uh, John has to compete with ABC, CDEF, all these other alternatives, that, that there'd be a more of a competitive tension, and that would I think raise the bar overall on, on, on the on the opportunity, and I think it would, it would pressure better management, bring more better management into venture capital and drive better IRRs, uh, if so, I guess, I would say it's a competitive issue, but I actually don't know the stats as well probably sure. as my counterparts here. Look, I've been investing for 11 years of my life, and look, I've come across a lot of people in this country, a lot of people around the world have been doing it. It is one of those apprentice businesses where you need to be given and afforded the opportunity to make mistakes. Um, you need to be able to work with people who have skills that you want to mimic and, and learn from some successes. I think just the general pool of people who've been through that have not either been exposed to the right people, um, and the ones that have are still around, and are generally being quite successful, and the ones who haven't have fallen off. So I think my goal, and I think the goal of a lot of the folks that are peers, is to make sure that we have not just ourselves, but folks that when you know there's a generational change are equipped and ready to be better than us. And I think that's one thing that I take very personally because I was fortunate enough to go through that process and make some of the big mistakes that you just don't want to do twice, right? And that, that's that's a, that's just a key element of it. And it's a very is a very finite number of people who do it. And I think the pool of monies when they get big end up attracting folks who otherwise didn't go through an apprentice and don't have an appreciation of how to do it. Question over here. Uh, gentlemen, my name's uh, Tony Pullen, and I've been around the capital markets a lot longer than I care to admit to. <laughs> and in the mid-80s, late 70s, early 80s, I uh, moved into the venture world from the resource world in a, as a capital market participant. And uh, back in, just to put a little history, the major source of venture capital back then was John's early iteration of his firm and all the other pension funds. The most innovative at the time was Alberta, the Alberta Treasury, Alberta Heritage Fund, which was a client of mine at the time. And they seeded and supported and financed the ecosystem that developed that uh, to some extent today gets such a bad rap. And to the point that was made earlier, when those funds and, and firms were being formed, they peopled them with guys that came from the banking industry to, to the issue of the Canadian difference. And, uh, and I've often uh, observed that that was part of the original problem. But having said that, the pension fund, when I listened to this VC shortage issue, to me the real dynamic was uh, uh, the pension funds left the business, left the scene, and then became so big that it was an enormous inconvenience for them in aggregate to support or to continue to seed venture investors in Canada. And they'd much rather make big infrastructure, 50, $100 million investments around the world, as we just see, saw this morning's paper in St. James Square, um, in real estate, admittedly then continue to invest in our future. And I've had some ideas along these lines over the recent past, but I just wondered if you gentlemen had some view as to how to engage, rather than the $400 million fund idea, 
which an old friend of mine, Tom Jenkins, <laughs> authored, um, a, a way of getting some closure between that problem and the government's role of creating a fiduciary awareness for this country from those pools of capital. Mm -hmm. Who wants to start? <laughs> All I would say is that uh, uh, in about 2008, pretty much all the pension funds in this country pulled out of the venture capital asset class. Um, and and uh, we jumped back in, in in 2011 in a very, very different model, looking at how do we uh, deal with some of the issues that, that, that you were asking. And if you were to ask me, aside from meeting the financial goals, which go without saying, I would say, my personal goal is to shame the other pension funds back into the asset class in Canada. Go ahead, Michael. I'm just saying there, there is an issue about scale uh, here. Pension funds in this country, between them, have hundreds of billions of capital. And obviously, they are all under pressure to get a return that will allow them to service their obligation. They're in better shape than the American funds overall, but there's still pressure. And we know we're now thinking about is there a structural change in the rate of return? And how do you, what do you do about that on the one hand? On the other hand, how much risk can you tolerate? And practically speaking, can you make, you can't make a 10,000 deals. So it's what scale do you get into? How much do you allocate? I think right now there's something like 2% of the capital in the pension funds that, that is being allocated to uh, this sort of venture work. But most firms, most pensions aren't putting any money in. Probably part of it is because they don't know how to do this and make it worth, kind of, worth the candle for them on the scale that can move the yardsticks for their performance. I think it's a cop-out. Well, Fair you enough. Can I mean, you can do the it. reality, too, is I don't, I, what I don't understand is why the Canadian pension, I mean, the, the, on the scale question and availability of opportunities, there are a lot of opportunities in not just the U.S. market, but globally. And what we do is we go after the real estate investment opportunity. We go after the safe, secure. Why aren't we making a venture investment in Facebook or in Google? Why aren't we at the early stages in a big way and for follow-on investment in those investments? And, and, and you know, maybe OMERS will change that and bring them back in. But bringing them back in just for a tiny little piece of their portfolio in Canada is not going to build a portfolio long-term in a meaningful way. So that, that really needs, again, it needs to be, going back to, it has to, we have to break through the culture of risk aversion embedded in those, those pension funds as well. And take the risk globally. Why aren't we investing, making venture investments in Brazil? Why aren't we making big venture investments in India or China? Because we all, we think in China, the jurisdiction is not favorable. They're going to, you know, there's not the rule of law. There isn't property rights. All these things we make up that are, you know, Mark, quick, quick comment from you, and then I want to go to the side. Yeah, of the sure. Just I'll, I'll comment quickly, not not necessarily on the the global aspects, but in our own backyard, we have a generation of folks now that uh, are in the I, I get it now generation, as I call it. Uh, they don't know dial tone. They don't understand uh, dial-up modems. Um, you know, th these are folks that grew up with access to the internet now all the time, and they are making a change in how we think and how we do things, and. You know, in our ecosystem, between 2008 and 2010, we went from zero to 1,000 people working in it. I expect by the end of 2014, we'll have, you know, five to 7,000 people working in that ecosystem. And those are small scales that we're making, multiplied across 10 groups. Now you're starting to get substantial scale where you'll start seeing innovation and things that are really going to differentiate above the crowd 
that breeds some success, that'll get everybody going, wow, where was I? And, and miss that opportunity, and they won't miss it again. One more question from this side of the room. Hello. I think the point Hello. Was, the point was made earlier that uh, inevitably the startups, when they come to you with business plans and you invest in them, those business plans don't necessarily come to fruition exactly. Could the panel maybe uh, speak about your experience and best practices of how startups can make those strategic pivots to something different and alter their business plans towards success? Just would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, a big part of the challenge for a startup, and, and from my, I speak from my own experience in startups, is, is, is the inertia you, you develop once you bring in an investment of a certain profile. So a big example I can use is, is, is WinMobile. We started in the prepaid business uh, with a huge venture investment in that business. Uh, and it was difficult. It took us, even though we were a young, early stage company, it took us six months, nine months to pivot into a postpaid focused offering. Uh, a lot of time was lost and a lot of money was lost making that that pivot. So I think for for that's a big example, and I can give you smaller smaller examples as as, as well. Um, where I think that the, the really the entrepreneur and the investors have to be willing to be constantly self-assessing and being be prepared to pivot very quickly when you know don't you know don't be in denial. Yeah, if the writing's on the wall, make a quick change. I want to go to one more question on this side of the room. Uh, uh, I'm a uh, 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 Chakravarti, professor from IIT Bombay from India, and I am presently the distinguished visiting professor in innovation at Ryerson University, and we've been doing some very exciting work at the university for the last eight months, where uh, we set up the digital media zone, where we have around 74 uh, com entrepreneurs coming up, and now the biggest endeavor is that it's not like earlier days where students uh, uh, didn't have technology support to start companies. Today we realize that we could start graduating entrepreneurs rather than graduating degree holders. Hmm. So I'd like to have your comments on this graduating entrepreneurs. And when we graduate entrepreneurs, we're putting in all the ingredients of creativity, ideas, talking to users, and that human angle to the design uh, development and the engineering development. So I've been uh, really very fortunate that I've been here and uh, trying to see this uh, country really focus on innovation and entrepreneurship. And I would like to hear from the panel what they have to say about graduating entrepreneurs rather than graduating degree holders. Omar? Yeah, sure. Look, I, uh, I deal with many hundreds of new grads a year uh, relative to when I graduated. It's a, it's a change. You know, we graduated degrees, aspirations to work at Nortel and, and, and other places. You know, that, that has changed. And I think what you're seeing now is people are graduating with skills uh, that will allow them to create a living for themselves much differently than saying, hey, I can go get a job. Right? They, they, have, they have unlimited opportunities. They want to they go where the growth is. They want to go where the excitement is. Uh, and that's the kind of innovation environment that we need to foster. I think, you know, I'll speak from our experience. You know, one, of our, one of our good deals ended up being a research thesis at the you know, University of Toronto in the master's uh, human-computer interface design. You know, the, the entrepreneur was unemployable, didn't, never really had aspirations for a job. So they had this really great concept. Concept was 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 okay, but they 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 pivoted. They got it. It ended up being you know today if anybody's an Android phone, it's the entire UI for the Android phone, right? This is this is something that just took the right chemicals and ingredients of of graduating somebody who wanted to do this entrepreneurship thing. Um, it's not for everybody. It's not a mass degree. There's not like a program where I think where you can get you know an undergrad and a master's and a PhD in this. But I think for for the right folks, it's the best thing that they can do. 
Very good. Thank you. As per usual, we run out of time for these things too quickly, but uh, it's been a, a great discussion. Thank you very much for this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back to you. Please welcome Richard Lee, National Managing Director of Deloitte, to provide the appreciation. Thank you, Noble. Um, Deloitte is delighted to be represented here today and to be a sponsor of an event that features such a, an experienced and high-caliber panel of experts. Let me thank again uh, Dr. Michael Bloom, Anthony Lacavera, Arma Varma, and John Ruffalo for an extremely interesting and uh, insightful session. I know I learned some things, and I'm sure everyone benefited from your uh, perspectives and your passion. And also thanks to Mike Apple for, uh, for leading such an informative and engaging uh, session. You know, it's encouraging that we are seeing a, a significant increase in the number of early stage companies. And now, as you heard, we just need to help them, help them grow. Um, this whole area is very important to Deloitte, and we're proud to do our bit to support Canada's fast-growing and early stage companies. Our Technology Fast 50 program celebrates technological innovation, entrepreneurship, rapid growth, and leadership in Canadian technology companies. The program is an opportunity for growing companies to gain national awareness, to raise their profiles, and to make connections that can help them take them to the next level. Uh, this year, I'm very pleased to welcome Omas Ventures as a sponsor for the program, along with Bennett Jones. And I encourage all the companies here today uh, to apply before the deadline of May 31st, Details are in the pamphlet on your tables. Once again, thank you very much to the panelists and to the Empire Club for the opportunity to participate in this, in this wonderful event. Thank you. As a token of our appreciation, I'll be giving each one of you a uh, copy of this book. It's called Who Said That? Memorable, memorable Notes, Quotes, and Anecdotes a selection of 100, and 100 years of Empire Club speeches. So you'll, you'll get that uh, when we adjourn. Um, finally, each of you should have at your seat a list of upcoming events. We're delighted to let you know that we have two uh, rather large events coming up. On Wednesday, June the 5th, we have uh, Governor Stephen Beshear, who is the governor of Kentucky, uh, and that will be at the Arcadian Court. And on Thursday, June the 20th, uh, we have His Eminence, Cardinal Thomas Collins, in conversation with Anna Maria Tremonti, and he's going to be talking about the papal conclave, so that should be very interesting. Uh, membership to the Empire Club of Canada is easy. You can visit us on our website uh, at www.empireclub.org. I'd like to thank Deloitte for sponsoring the event today. I'd like to thank Pragmatic Conferencing and MNP for sponsoring our VIP reception. Thank you to Canada's Venture Capital and Private Equity Association for sponsoring our student table this afternoon. I'd like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor. And this meeting, like others, is carried live on Rogers TV, and we thank Rogers TV for your continued support. And we're also now on Twitter and Facebook. Please follow us. Thank you all for coming. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This meeting of the Empire Club of Canada has now adjourned. <laughs>